This is lesson 38 in the study of Romans. We're, we're going to finish up chapter 11 today. These 11 chapters of the book of the Romans are the clearest explanation of the unexplainable that we have in scriptures. And as we leave these 11 chapters, now Paul's going to get to the hard stuff. He's going to begin to tell us what it all means to us on a personal level, on an everyday conduct level. So let's finish up this chapter so we can get right to that good stuff. It says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation or your own conceit, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. And you know, if you go to many congregations, they tell you that they're the only ones with the truth. And if you're not part of our congregation, you're on the outside. We have the mystery. We have the secret truth. And you cannot receive this on, our, on your own. It's our leaders that have the truth. Well, that's not what's meant here. And let me tell you something. God doesn't work like that. Yes, he has some mysteries, some deeper meanings of scripture that are hard to understand or that sometimes are impossible to understand depending on where you are in the scheme of things. You see, the problem is his thoughts are so far above our thoughts that we just can't really see the big picture. And so the big picture is termed a mystery to most. And it is a mystery. But God doesn't give the mystery to any single people group. He'll give the mysteries to those who seek Him and He gives them in His timing. Listen, God doesn't have truths that are not available to all. The worship of God is not some mystery religion. It's a faith based on clarity and truth and He's always trying to make Himself known. He's always trying to enter into a covenant relationship with men so that these truths can be understood and can be shared. And what Paul means here is that the word of God has a depth that takes some direction from the Spirit of God to understand. In other words, there's a deeper meaning. There's something on a level that we don't quite comprehend going on here. Oftentimes you don't grasp the mystery until you see it unfold before your very eyes. And then again, God can often, he often does, he reveals it before it happens. It all depends. He's sovereign. He does what he wants to do. As an example, before the first century, who would have ever thought that God was going to send his son, the very one who was with him at creation and through whom all things were made, he was going to send him into the the world to suffer at the hands of sinners. Think about it. What a mystery it was. It's stated in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 says, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast in the field. On your belly you will go, you will eat dust. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Would you have grasped The mystery of God from these words that he was going to send his son into the world? How about 
the story of Abraham. Genesis chapter 22 verse 7 says, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood are here, but the lamb for the burnt offering. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Would you, before Yeshua came into the world, been able to piece that together, that God was going to send his son Yeshua into the world to pay this price? And the point is, you would not. It was a mystery until it happened. And unless the Spirit of God reveals it to you, you're not going to grasp the deeper meaning. You're not going to grasp the mystery. Well, Paul's already grasped this mystery and he's going to tell us something from the Word of God. As if he hasn't given us enough mysteries already, right? And the first part of the mystery that you have to understand is that Israel has received a hardening in part. When we've spoken of that, it was much of the topic of chapters 9 through 11 but then it says until the fullness of the gentiles comes in what on earth is the fullness of the gentiles well most the most common thought is that it's a full number of gentiles and it certainly must mean a vast number I mean, the church got that part. Hence, we've turned the Great Commission from go make many disciples or students of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. We turned that into go into the world and get as many people to say, I believe in Jesus as we can. Hoping to bring the full number in. The problem is, as we should have realized by now from the book of Romans, We can't take it to mean that alone. Paul has spent much time telling these folks that Israel is not forsaken by God. He's been telling them why, telling us why, and the reason is they're loved by God. He told us this mystery already that the Gentiles, when they turn to God, when they start to keep the righteous requirements of God, the righteous decrees of God that are for them, that they would incite Israel to jealousy. We covered that last week. The whole reason for the letter is the Romans are not doing that. They have an I believe in Jesus club Because he loves us Romans and now the Jews are forsaken. And so because of the error in that thought, they have little regard for the Jewish people. Little regard for the commands of God. Listen, these folks are so confused that he has to begin the whole letter by telling them that he's long to preach the gospel to them. And so he spends the whole first part of the letter telling them the gospel and pointing out that it's to the Jew first. And then the Greek. And so the point is that the fullness of the Gentiles means a number of believers in Yeshua, of course, but it also means it's more than just saying these words, I believe in Jesus. It means that we have to come to a fullness of understanding. That we have to come to a full life change. A fullness of obedience to God as Abraham had. A fullness of walking with God as Abraham did. 
So that one day God would be able to say of the Romans something very similar to what is said of Abraham by James in chapter 2 verse 23. 21 and 23 it says, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see, if you take that into consideration, the fullness of Gentiles must not only mean the number, but the fullness also means that we come to some fullness of understanding and a fullness of obedience to God. Because as Paul has already told us, Israel needs to see the nations turning to God. And so it implies that Israel must see a turning toward the commands of God to show that the Gentiles have turned toward God. There has to be some evidence for them to see. If the Jewish people do not see the nations remove the idols and idol worship, if they don't see the nations keeping what is required of the nations in the Torah, then they will have no visible evidence that the Gentiles have turned to the God of Israel. Certainly part of the reason the Jewish people did not become jealous is that the Romans did not rid themselves of the idols. They just renamed their old idols to Jesus, John, Paul, and Mary. They didn't attempt to keep those parts of the Torah that the Jewish people deemed necessary to show that they had turned toward God. Instead, they told the Jewish people, we don't need Torah anymore, it's been abolished. He told us that Israel has to see the nations have turned to God and that when they see the nations turning from their idols to obey God, Israel will take note. And then he says this in verse 26, he says... And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And so the next part of the mystery that we need to understand here is who's Israel in this verse? It says all Israel will be saved. Well, Israel has to be the Jewish people. Now you may think, well Stan, that's elementary. Why waste our time telling us that? But I want to tell you what many commentators want to tell you and pastors preach in churches every Sunday is that the Israel in this verse is the church or the saved Jews and the church. But simple hermeneutics tells you that if Israel in the last sentence and the sentence preceding this was the Jewish people, then it has to be the Jewish people here as well. Unless some explanation is offered ahead of it. So Paul says, all Israel will be saved. And what is all Israel? Is it every descendant of Jacob who ever lived? Well, we know that can't be because Paul told us in Romans 9, they are not all Israel descended from Israel. So what does it mean? Well, at some point in time, All who are Israel are going to come to a knowledge of Messiah. 
And to tell us how that will happen, Paul quotes Isaiah. And he quotes it very loosely. Listen to what he says. I put both verses up here for you. Romans eleven twenty six: The deliverer will come from Zion and will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's what Paul said. But Isaiah said something different. He said, a redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. So why would Paul change come to Zion to come from Zion? Well, he's explaining a mystery here after all, right? And the fact is, the redeemer or the deliverer has already come to Zion. And so now that he's come to Zion, he's going out from Zion. Right? He's not going to say the deliverer will come to Zion when he already knows that the deliverer has come to Zion. He's not coming to Zion any longer. He's going out. Think about it. Yeshua was born in Israel, raised in Israel. For all intents and purposes, he never left Israel. And so Yeshua is an Israeli. And if you're an Israeli, you're from Zion. There's a reason they call people who are pro-Israel Zionists. Well, when he first sent his disciples out, what did he say to his disciples? He says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but not to the nations. Right? Because the deliverer had come to Zion. But now the deliverer is going out from Zion. The word of the Lord is going out from Zion. And his final instructions to his disciples is go make disciples, students of all nations, teaching them to obey. Do you see how this fits into what I've been telling you, what I've been saying? The deliverer will come from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And when the Jewish people see the nations turning to God because of Messiah Yeshua, they're going to realize that the deliverer has come and that he is Messiah Yeshua. He is the deliverer and they're going to become envious and they're going to turn to God as well. The problem is the Romans have to obey and they're not. You know, I think, you know, Paul sees Yeshua as the living word, the Torah made flesh, the goal of the Torah, going out from Zion. And that event should be turning Israel back to God and Messiah. So in his telling of the mystery, he says the deliverer will come from Zion and remove all ungodliness from Jacob. Has the Torah gone out from Zion? Well, because of Yeshua, the world knows or should know or at least has at their disposal the whole of the word of God. The Bible has been printed in every known language of the world. So yes, the word of the Lord has gone out from Zion. Next, he tells us when Israel is going to be saved. He says, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When is he going to do that? Well, Jeremiah told us this. And this is what he's quoting here. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah within them and on their heart I will write it 
and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they will not teach again every man his neighbor or every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And so who is this new covenant made to? Israel, the Jewish people. And when does this covenant begin? It's begun. Israel will be saved when they realize that Yeshua is the Redeemer and enter into the new covenant with God. When Paul wrote this, there was a remnant who had already entered in. We talked about it last week. But a, just a remnant. And that's why he says there's a partial hardening. The new covenant has begun. And when we see all Israel turn to God and enter into this new covenant. When is this going to happen? At the return of the Messiah. Listen to what Zechariah tells us about this. He says this in verse 10. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for a child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for the firstborn. God is going to pour out on Israel the same grace that he's poured out on the nations He's going to take the hardening of the heart away and they're going to see Yeshua. He's going to take the blindness of, away and they're going to look on Yeshua, the one that we pierced. And they're going to mourn for him as a firstborn because he is the firstborn. God was going to pour out the same grace that he's poured out on the nations. He's going to take away the hardening. He's going to take away that blindness. And listen to what Paul says next. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We like to read that and apply that to ourselves, but he's not applying that to us. He's applying it to the call of Israel. Does it apply to us? Well, yes, it does. But he's applying it here to Israel. And he says, look, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are your enemies. They fight against the gospel. They don't believe Yeshua is the Messiah. They don't believe that you're grafted into Israel through faith. But you really need to go through a prescribed procedure developed by the rabbis. They make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Go down the street to the Orthodox synagogue and tell me how many Gentiles you find there. Not many. Paul says they're enemies of the gospel because they made it difficult for Gentiles to come in. Their focus is not turning people to God. Their focus is turning people to Jews, into Jews. But they're still beloved by God. God has given them a hardening of heart that makes them the enemies of the gospel. Why? So that you could be grafted in. Listen to what verse 30 says. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. What a plan, right? 
Who'd have thought about that? God wants to show mercy to all the disobedient who turn toward him. Israel was disobedient to God. Then again, so were the nations. But they should have known, we were told at the very beginning of the letter, they should have known from creation. But the nations, instead of worshiping the creator, worshiped the creation. And so God pours out a spirit of grace on the nations that turned them away from the worship of other gods so that he could show the same mercy to the disobedient Israel. And you know, when it's all said and done, who's going to cry foul? Who's going to say, hey, this isn't fair? And how does Paul sum up this amazing mystery? Chapters 9 through 11. I don't know if you noticed it, but the whole thing was a mystery because nobody would ever put this together. Right? He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. How many songs have been taken from this short piece of scripture here? Think about it. And how beautiful are these words. You see, when all is said and done, if you understand the mystery or if you only understand a small portion of the mystery, Maybe you only understand your own salvation. But when you see it, you end up seeing how unsearchable the judgments of God, how unfathomable his ways. Paul's writing this letter and he's focusing on all God has done to four and two mankind for 4,000 years of loving man culminating in the sending of his own son to die for his sin. He sees the depth of his love and I believe he, he attempts here to put his joy of his heart on paper in what we call the doxology. Who knows what a doxology is? <laughs> right? I had to look it up this morning. <laughs> doxology. I don't know about you, but there's been many times in my life when I was studying the Word of God that I was sitting in my chair, sitting at my computer screen getting ready to prepare a message. And all of a sudden I realize some part of his plan, some of the vastness of his love for us. And I just sit there with tears in my eyes and songs start to flood into my mind. Times when you have to stop reading and writing and just sit there and praise God because that's all you can do. You can't write any longer. All you can do is just sit there and praise the God of Israel. Then you think, well, how am I going to put this on paper in the sermon? <laughs> well, that's what's going on with Paul here. The only thing he, he manages to, to uh, get on, he manages to get it on paper. And he ends, he gets to the end, and he more than rightly realizes, hey, he's still fallen short. He still hasn't explained this whole mystery because it's too great. And so he says, Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God for who has known the mind of the Lord. You see, 
He's just in 11 chapters laid out the most complete and simple understanding of the plan of God ever put down on parchment for man and sent it to the Romans. He's managed to explain things that are literally a mystery upon mystery. I mean, think about it. We've been looking at this letter for 38 weeks and I don't mean to boast because there's nothing for me to boast about, but people have come and said all kinds of thank yous and thank you for unpacking this book of Romans for us. 38 hours of teaching by me, but these Romans are getting it all in one sitting. Right? This letter is filled with truths that people for centuries would have given anything to understand. And they get it in about an hour. I don't know what they're feeling at the moment, but I can tell you they should be on their feet with their hands in the air praising God or maybe on their faces worshiping God. Because I can tell you that's what the writer's doing as he pens these last words. I can see him, just like me, sitting at the computer screen. He's sitting there with tears rolling down his face, writing on this parchment that he's going to send to the Romans. He's going to spend the rest of the letter telling us what we should do with all of this. Paul received the gospel. What did he say when he received the gospel? We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Acts chapter 22, verse 8, he says... He's about to receive the gospel and Yeshua is speaking to him. He says, I am Yeshua of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw this light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? You see, the gospel, when it's revealed to you, when you see Messiah is the Son of God and what he's done for you, it has to elicit, or it should elicit, what must I do? Well, think about it. Think about what he has just told them in this short letter. The whole plan of God for them and the Jewish people. And what do you suppose he's hoping that their response will be? Well, he's hoping that they're ready and they're crying out to God, What must I do? He's hoping that they hear this, Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God and say, How small I am. What must I do? What can I do? When they hear how unsearchable his judgments, how unfathomable his ways, they'll say how foolish and selfish I've been. How deceived I've been. What must I do? What can I do? I mean, you come to these kind of truths and it makes you stop. Like an old hymn and say, My God. How great thou art. That song came to me as I read the words of Paul because the words of that song are so similar to what Paul's saying. And so similar to what Paul's trying to say in this whole letter. We often speak of how great an evangelist Billy Graham was and and how many people we saw come forward at these mass meetings that he had. And no doubt he was a, a, a wonderful evangelist. But I thought this week, how many people that went to those meetings were already, were really stopped in their tracks and came to the altar, not by Graham's words, but by George Beverly Shea singing this song. 
The song starts out much the same way the letter to the Romans starts out. Remember, Paul said, all mankind should have known and sought after God. They should have looked at creation and sought after God. And that's the way the song begins. It begins this way. He says, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed, then my soul sings. My Savior, my God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. You see, the point being, when you consider the vastness of the creation and the wonder of what he's made, it stuns you. And all you can do is break into songs of praise, as Paul did here. You can call it a doxology if you want, but I'm calling it a song. You know, I'm not a hymn person, but this really is one of the greatest, I think it's one of the greatest hymns ever written. And for that matter, maybe the the greatest heart-tugging song ever written. I couldn't help but think of it and begin to sing it as I read these words of Paul this week. I said earlier, and I want to repeat it because I know that there are those who do not appreciate all the time the words of Paul. But understand that Paul saw the plan of God and he tried to put it on paper for us. And since that time, though, we've read this spirit-filled letter with carnal minds, with selfish minds that twist these amazing words into selfish little tirades. Taken out of context. And you're going to have to excuse me today. I usually don't do this, but I really got to listening to this song and thinking about this song this week. You know, it was actually written by two men who stole a melody from another song. (laughs) But there's some verses that you don't hear in most renditions. I mean, you'd hear them if you opened up a hymnal. But if you hear somebody sing them, you don't hear some of these verses. And one of those verses was this. It says, When I think of God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. You see, Paul sees that What God has done, it's so great and so wonderful that we can scarce take it in. What happens when we hear those words, when we sing that song? It tugs at our hearts and so we apply it to ourselves personally. We take that last sentence there. My burden gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin. And it leads us to tears because it's so true. I watched a YouTube video where Carrie Underwood was singing this song at some award show and there was scarcely a dry eye in the place. Because such a great truth, when you hear it, has to do something to you. I don't care how bad a sinner you are, it has to do something to you. That's what made this song such a powerful evangelistic tool. But what I want to get across to you today, it's greater than that. What Paul is saying is all of this is greater than applying it to yourself. 
We've been applying it to ourselves for 2,000 years. The fact is, what God did by sending His Son was greater than your salvation. And that song sang it. We can scarce take it in. But there has to come a time when more than just applying it to our personal selves, when we have to realize more. When we have to understand, when we do understand what that phrase means, we'll have the fullness that Shaul spoke of. And when all the Gentiles have it, we'll have the fullness of the Gentiles. Go outside tonight. Get out of the city. Go outside and look up at the stars and count them if indeed you can count them. Yeshua didn't die for you alone. He died for what you can scarce take in. He died for people so numerous that the stars in the sky can't begin to count them. How great he is. Do you see what he's saying? Paul's trying to tell us. Get out of your small little world. Consider all that God has made and Yeshua has saved. You need to do that. You need to keep that at the forefront of your mind as you go through this journey that we call life. And you can scarce take it in. So Paul says in the next verse, chapter 12, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living, holy, sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Did you grasp the plan? Well, you can't grasp the plan because how unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord. But I can tell you what you can understand. I can tell you that you can understand this part. Present your bodies as living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see, we're responsible we should have looked at creation and said, my God, how great thou art. We should have looked at the stars in the sky and said, of the salvation of Israel, how great thou art. We should have read, all the nations of the earth will be blessed and counted the stars again for the nations of the earth and said, how great thou art. He's going to tell us in chapter 13, it's not about money, it's not about taxes. But what about money can do for others? In chapter 14, he's going to tell us it's not about food, it's about offending. It's not about days of worship. It's all about our service of worship daily. Amen. You see, when the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles, is when they get out of their own small little world and look at the universe and count the stars in the sky and say... When I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I can scarce take it in. How great thou art. When we get rid of ourselves and we begin to realize just how great our God is, we'll reach a fullness. When we understand that God has hardened Israel and we're part of the plan to remove the veil, when we care for them more than we care about ourselves, we will have reached the fullness of the Gentiles. Amen?